Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIL Security Insider podcast. And today I am talking with Peter Johnson of the compliance section within ASIL. And we're talking about all things related to uh, some changes in the business director ID and things that have happened in the security industry around COVID over the last couple of years. Peter, welcome to the program. John, thank you very much. Nice to be uh, with you again. I was going to say, it's a pleasure to have you back. It's been a while since we've had a chat. It has. Now, the the director's ID thing, this is something that has emerged within the last, what, 12 months or so, and I, I think it's something a lot of people are still struggling to understand. What exactly is the director's ID and why do we need one? Yeah, it's certainly something that's happening over the last few years, and the director identification number is a government initiative to identify all directors, and all directors of all companies need to have a director identification number. The government have provided the website, the process to apply. Uh, they've got their website, the questions need to be answered. But you need to be able to uh, prove your identity. It can be all done online. But the thing being is it's all about managing organisations that have multiple directors and directors that are for companies or multiple companies. And we find that there's been a lot of incidents that have occurred in Australia over recent years where people have gone into receivership, bankruptcy, liquidation, and the directors have just moved into other companies and they have been, in the eyes of some, acted inappropriately. So the director identification number is going to give every person an individual number and that will be able to be searched. So if you're going to be a member of a of a company and part of their board, you will be required to have a identification number, but people can find out how many companies you are actually a director of and whether you are actually banned from being a director or whether in fact you've got orders against you or court cases. So that's going to protect many organisations from dealing with people that really have got um, maybe habitual practices of acting inappropriately. So it's all about uh, safety, compliance, and it was all supposed to be done by the end of November and the government have extended that to the 14th of December. And as of the end of November, the reason they extended it, there's 700,000 directors still required to identify themselves and get a, a number. So if you don't register, there are penalties to be applied and the taxation office will be part of that process to actually take action against directors that are not uh, have not registered themselves with an identification number. So it's all about compliance. It's all about um, making sure we know who's who in the world of business and that you're not being dealing with people that are not permitted to be a director of a company. Yeah, and I imagine a lot of this was in direct response to, as you pointed out earlier, a lot of the the term they used was phoenixing that was going on where companies would shut down one organisation and then open another one to try and avoid obligations and liabilities and other bits and pieces. Is that correct? Exactly. Now, there's always been people that have acted in this way and used the system to avoid all those areas of compliance. Even with the director identification number, there are going to be some areas that people try to work around, but at least we'll know that if someone's trying to phoenix a company, we know that companies can be established with um, shadow directors, or they are directors, but they're really operating as shadow directors, don't have control. So we really need government to work in that area as well. And they are doing a lot of work in that, but it is a compliance requirement. 
we are required to do it in our industry susceptible to the phoenixing just like many other industry sectors but pressure on organizations on finance uh, matters are taken to court and next minute a company goes into liquidation and then they phoenix so it is a problem and it has been designed to meet those requirements so if anyone who's listening to this is currently the director of a security organization, whether it be manpower, electronics, systems, integration, whatever it may be, and they haven't yet completed a director's ID, what do they need to do? Just go to the Australian Business Registry Services. It's the Australian Government Online. And just follow the bouncing ball. There's the area of um, applying. It tells you how to actually verify your identity. You've got to produce your passport, driver's license, matters that can be identified online. You'll be taking a photo of yourself online and that will all be confirmed. And within a matter of hours, your identification number can be registered. Yeah. And I imagine this is something that you have to do personally. You can't just get your office admin or finance people to do. Exactly. It's something you've got to do and it's your face that's going to be there. Part of your, uh, when I did mine, it was part of my passport photo uh, that was actually held up in front of the camera. So it's got to be you. And that's yeah. sometimes people get a little bit busy and they think, I'll do it. But now, if it's not done by the 14th of December, penalties may apply. All right. Now, the other area that there's been a fair bit of movement in, especially since COVID, has been around notification to regulators of things like changes of directors, which is related to what we were just talking about, ownership and sale of a business. So let's talk a little bit about that what what what's been going on in this space? Yeah, COVID's been a challenging time for many businesses and many individuals. Of course, what we've found is that we start to see that some organisations have been under financial pressure. They've bought in other investors. They have other directors. There's been a change, and even the sale of a business, which I'll come to, which we can discuss in a moment. But the directors, where you've appointed someone else that's come into the business, have taken the share of the business. That then means that you've had a change of a director within your organisation. That means that you're required to notify ASIC of a change of director. And sometimes the accountants and lawyers supporting a business in that process don't quite understand the security licensing. And because security licensing is all jurisdictional based, we have variations. And just to give you the variation, you're required to tell the regulator when you have a change of anything in your business, from an address to a director to a close associate, those people that can influence the decision-making in the business, when you're required to notify them, like New South Wales, you're required to notify them within 14 days, Victoria within 28 days, Queensland within seven days, uh, Western Australia within 21 days. So we've, nothing's the same right across the Australia. But the thing being is we are required to notify the regulator of every change. And that's one of the challenges that we've found during COVID. Yeah. And I suppose there are some slightly different compliance requirements with directors in the security space to say in you just your your average run-of-the-mill business with regard to who can and can't be a director within a security business. Is that correct? Exactly. And that's where the regulators require that information and that's why they've put a time on it and there are penalties associated with it if you don't actually advise them now we see that the close associate the director directors in security firms are required to actually undergo criminal history check fingerprint checks they are they are recognized within the legislation of all jurisdictions as being that person of influence over the business 
So that's what they can they they can influence the business. The regulator wants to know who they are. Criminal history checks. Naturally, you can be a director of many companies without doing a criminal history check, but within security, that's required. So therefore, we have a business that has new director needs to be notified. They have to go under a close associate form, a person of interest form, and sometimes the jurisdictions like uh, New South Wales they would have a form for that. Uh, Victoria doesn't have a form. Um, you would then write a letter. Queensland, you would send them an email or a letter. So there again, there are variations in relation to what we need to do to actually advise the regulator, but we need to advise them. So that close associate, that new director, that new investor. Now, it doesn't mean that all investors are required to be identified, but if they are in a position that can influence the operation or decision-making of that business, they will be recognised by the legislation as being a person of interest, close associate, so therefore they also need to be listed. So there's slight variations in each jurisdiction, but criminal history will ban, or inappropriate criminal history will ban that person from being a director of a security firm. And so, so therefore the regulators will actually see that and say, not approved. So let's just talk about that for a minute and drill down a little bit, because I can see that there may be um, the possibility arising of people who think, look, I'm bringing in a friend who's going to be a a silent partner in the business. Um, You know, he's putting in a a 40% stake in the business. He's not necessarily in a director's role, um, but, you know, 20 years ago when he was young, he was, you know, the master of sergeant at arms of the Hell's Baboons Motorcycle Club or something and, uh, you know, had a few charges laid against him. Where does How does this work? All jurisdictions have criminal history periods whereby certain offences, you will not get a licence or be recognised within five years. Others offences within 10 years. Generally speaking, after that, they aren't records that will directly ban you from actually being associated with a security firm. But the regulators have the opportunity to still consider that you are a person of of not not having appropriate uh, history. Um, Your conduct is something that they would question, especially if you'd been involved with significant charges, been associated with outlaw motorcycle gangs, um, with organisations that have had a criminal history association, the regulator will see that as being inappropriate for the security industry and not approve the licence or the inclusion of that person as an investor. Now, a lot of times, as you say, it's someone that's not a director invested some money. But the question naturally is, will that person have influence over the direction of the business? And that's where we've had inquiries with government on criminal intelligence of criminal influence into organisation, licensable activities. And inquiries, the uh, Australian Crime Commission uh, have done investigations in that where security industry was involved, um, brothels, sex industry, uh, those areas that are licensed, tattoos, where there's licenses associated with, they're trying to find out who's associated with those businesses. And also remember that some of those businesses have been associated over the years with laundering of money. And that's where the Austrac, uh, from an Australian federal government point of view and the financial industry, they need to know and want to know 
who's actually moving the money. And laundering money is one of those areas associated with a lot of inappropriate criminal activity. So how do we determine, and I mean, this may be a bit of a red herring, so you may or may not be able to answer this, but if someone has invested uh, money into a business, it's almost impossible, I would suggest, to say that they are going to have no direct influence over how that business is run. I mean, no one gives you a whole bunch of cash and then goes, do what you like with it. I don't care. Uh, Yeah. Well, some people do, and that's when you get companies that have shares. And the shareholder doesn't have that direct influence in the running of the business. So they invest significant money, but they're the listed companies, and there's a lot of rules around listed companies as well. But when you get that small security business that – has a person investing in it, investing their money, you'd have to say, what are they really looking for? Their return on investment. And so therefore, yes, it is not necessarily known, but if it comes to the attention of the regulator, they will then move through the process of an investigation, suspend the security license or cancel the security license. And then you've got that whole challenge once again of of how you operate. Now, we've seen it happen in the past where certain industry Operators have operated inappropriately, been associated with criminal, uh, the criminal element of society, and regulators have questioned their conduct. Sometimes these organisations continue with a licence because the evidence is not there for the regulator to act. But from a general industry point of view, it is a, a situation where we've got to be part of that process and try to, uh, I guess, work with the systems and try to support our industry to keep it clean in the way and operate in the way in which we would like to see it operate. Yeah. So given that you deal with this kind of stuff all day, every day in your compliance role, where are you most commonly seeing people run afoul of this and what are the common mistakes that they're making? And then we can move on to how to avoid them. Well, look, the one we see is where we've seen organisations sell the business and they're selling, the business is being sold to sometimes overseas organisations where we've got an example might be we've got a director in America, a director in China, a director in Singapore, um, and we've got a director in Australia, and they've changed. The business hasn't changed. You can see, This is where our lawyers and accountants sometimes don't quite grasp the security licensing is that our ABN ACN is the entity in which we get the security license for our business. You cannot change that. You can change the name of your business. You can have multiple trading names, so long as you advise the regulator. You can have all those things happen, but you cannot change the ABN ACN. Now, when you buy and sell a business, a good accountant and lawyer would say, you're better off not to buy the problems. And that may be the ACN ABN, because it may be associated with some employment problems, money's owed, debts work cover claims, those things that may impact financially upon an organisation. Some organisations don't want to buy those problems, but just want to buy the name and buy the business. Well, if you buy the name and buy the business, that doesn't give you the security licence associated with that business. So the person or organisation purchasing that must either already have a security business licence, or if they're going to, if they don't hold one, they're going to have to apply for one. And currently in Australia, our regulators are probably one of the biggest barriers to 
businesses opening up because it can take quite a number of weeks and even months to get a security license for a business through. So when we go back to that overseas firm purchasing an Australian security business, the directors need to be advised, say you've got to change your ASIC forms. That form's then got to be advised to the regulator and those overseas people have got to be identified. And that's where we get a slight variation. We have changes where we don't necessarily need criminal history at times and other times we have. And so it depends on the jurisdiction. And we encourage when you have this transaction taking place to contact the regulator to see what their process is at the moment. Historically, we've had organisations where new directors came into a business and they were living overseas, never come to Australia, and but had to have criminal history check done and identification done. And ultimately, they went to Australian High Commission in London and did it that way. Now we see that where a director, in example, being in Queensland, a director overseas would be that they would need to prove identification as to their residency in the country. It may be that they live in um, uh, China and they would need to prove that they would have a residency there in relation to um, rates notice, ownership of the premises, so they can identify who they are. Not necessarily they need a complete criminal history check, and that's why we've got to check with the regulator each time to see if things have changed. Um, so there the change are taking place, but what we're seeing is that some of the small companies are in financial difficulties, deciding to sell, and the new person comes in, and that the accountants and lawyers are doing the right thing for the relationships that are taking place, but they just don't investigate the security licensing. And we've had an example being the structure of business. And it may be that there's some great, there's nothing wrong with tax minimization. It can be legal, but it's got to be in a process that is completely compliant. But the thing being is you may set up companies that don't quite relate to the security licensing, relate to taxation. Example being we can have in the taxation world, you can have a companies or many companies owned by the same board and they can be grouped for taxation purposes. But when they've got individual AB and ACNs, they've got the same board. You can't necessarily group that in security licensing for businesses. So they've all got to have their own individual. So you can have one big parent company and a lot of trading names. That That's no problem at all. But when you've got different entities, it doesn't quite work the same in the world of taxation of multiple companies compared to security licensing. So we just have that area in the example that I'd give is that a great management of a structure of a company was great for ATO, um, but unfortunately in Queensland it was set up and for 11 years they operated without a security license in the appropriate company. They had two companies, one was licensed, one wasn't. The thing being is the one that wasn't actually needed the license as well. So you then increase your risks to your business by not appropriately ensuring that licenses are held because you may have an incident and you may be covered by insurance. But once your insurance finds out that you are not appropriately licensed, it could be a situation where you don't have that insurance cover. And remember that if you, as a director, as a company board, if you take on board decisions that are not appropriate, and you knowingly make these decisions not to be licensed or not to be covered in a certain way to meet compliance, 
you may actually remove that veil of protection that sometimes directors have in companies. And that may then lead those directors to have personal liability. And that's another risk to business that we need to make sure that we're aware of and to protect ourselves in running businesses, because it can be a big risk personally, as well as to a business. Sure. So if I'm a a small sole trader, I know that I have to have a security license to operate and that my security company needs a a license. But in larger organisations with multiple people and multiple directors, do all directors have to have a security license? Or is it enough for the organisation to have a security license and each of those directors to be listed? Yeah, again, that gets a little bit of a variation around Australia. You're quite, but normally the entity holds the license and the entity, the ABNACM holds the license with a nominated person. That nominated person could be the general manager and that general manager, if they do not undertake a security activity, would not need to hold a personal license, but they would be the nominated person for the master license. Because remember, we've got Queensland, it's called a firm license, New South Wales and the ACT, it's called a master license. Victoria, it's called a security business license or registration. And in the other jurisdictions, we normally find it being an agent's license. So therefore, it's generally to the entity. But then you get Western Australia, where the license is actually held by the an agent, but the business has got to give that agent the approval to be the license holder for them. If that agent leaves that company, that company won't have a license. They'll have to get a new agent to actually hold the license on their behalf. So there are variations, but a company, an entity, is required to hold a business license in some way, shape or form. You talked about the word sole trader. That's a little bit different because we do get some use and abuse of sole traders where they are the only person working their business. And in jurisdictions like Queensland and Victoria, we still have an anomaly where the ABN, a person can be an individual have a little bit of a business and that is under a personal ABN and they can go and as a business provide their security work themselves on a personal license just under an ABN. Thankfully, we're moving through that and that's being changed in Victoria when the new legislation is reviewed. We're not, it won't be reviewed until 2023. Queensland will still have that. Queensland may be the only jurisdiction that will then Uh, allow ABN holders to work as sole traders in that regard. But uh, we see even in New South Wales, Victoria will move that way. Sole trader is required to hold a master license um, and then they require to hold a personal license. New South Wales is changing that because it's a duplication. But thing being is you've got to be recognised as a business and that means that you've got to be compliant as a business. You've, uh, You've got to meet certain requirements in relation to business management taxation in relation to your business and work cover in relation to your business. There's certain areas there that that we really need to understand and make sure that we're compliant in those areas. Okay. Now, last question, because we sort of need to bring this in within the time frame. but is there is there a major difference in this scheme between executive and non-executive directors? No. If you are a director of a company, you fall into the area of being a close associate. The executive director and a non-executive director means one's working within the organisation and one's not working within the organisation. Most directors of are, not, are non-executive directors because they sit on the board and provide the uh, the overarching 
observation and compliance, where an executive director could be the general manager of the business as well and being directly and intimately involved with the operation of the business and will be paid as a potentially as an employee where some directors may just receive a director's fee or in some organisations, directors don't receive any fees at all. So there's nothing different in relation to if you're a director of a company, you're required to have the director identification number. And if you're in relation to a director, you're required to meet the requirements of a close associate or person of interest, whichever jurisdiction that you're operating in. Okay. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this podcast, it really should come as absolutely no shock to you, if you are a member of ASIL, that you can ring Peter and ask him these questions because that's what he does. Uh, Peter, if people want to get in contact with you, what do they do? Either contact ASIL or just my email is peter at asial.com.au. And it, it does come as a surprise to me that a lot of people still don't realise that ASIL offers this service. Can you explain to me a little bit or explain to the people listening a little bit more about what you actually do? Right. The ASIL organisation, the Secretariat, provides a lot of member support and also provides some advisors like myself and also Chris Delaney. We're advisors to members and that membership gives us, that member, our services and we're contactable. So everything dealing with licensing, communication with regulators, compliance matters, where we don't we don't know. Some of our members have incidents whereby the regulator challenges them in certain areas. They can come to us to say, well, what should I do? How should I manage it? Most of the work that I do is one that is dealing with issues and problems. But an organisation have questions. They don't normally ring us to say, have a nice day. You're saying, I've got this, what do I do? And I'm not quite sure if it's right. They should seek professional advice, accountants, lawyers. The thing being is, as I said before, a lot of the areas are not known. The life security licensing areas aren't quite understood by a lot of other areas. So come to us, have a chat, and we'll certainly be able to guide you and direct you into where you, what you need to be thinking about, how to make those decisions, or who are other organisations to seek clarification and direction from. Thank you very much. And <clears throat> pardon me, if you have enjoyed this chat, there are a heap more like them in the ASIL podcast series. You can find those on the ASIL website at www.asial.com.au. They're in the uh, news section under podcasts. If you have found the information that Peter has provided particularly useful, there is a new ASIL Go app that has just been released. And that app is available to members. It's on both Android and iOS in both of those stores. You can download that app and through that app, you can access all kinds of information from ASIL, from you know legislative requirements through to information on compliance, membership and all the rest of it. So go to the ASIL website and check that out or go to the iOS store or the Android store and look up uh, ASIL Go. And Peter, this won't be our last chat. We're gonna we're gonna try and make an effort to do this as a bit of a regular fireside thing throughout next year. Correct? Pleasure to, and uh, certainly, uh, hopefully, we can provide that good information for members. Yeah, but we uh, we probably won't chat again before Christmas. In which case, have a safe Christmas and a happy New Year. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for tuning in. And same goes to you. And we hope you all have a safe break. Thank you.